0: Hi everyone, thanks for joining us at our first Lean Startup webcast. Today's topic is Getting Engineers into the Lean Startup Cycle. I'm Melissa Tinitigan, the Executive Producer of the Lean Startup Conference, which is coming up on December 9th to 11th. Please visit leanstartup.co for more information. Our two speakers today are Eric Ries, the author of the book The Lean Startup, and co-host of the Lean Startup Conference, and Dan Milstein, a developer, HUT8Labs co-founder, and one of the most popular speakers at last year's conference. A few housekeeping notes. We will be taking questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it by starting with a colon before your question. This is a 40-minute program, and the recording will be available after this live webcast. Finally, we'd like to thank our official webcast partner, Ustream. Take it away, Eric and Dan.
1: Hello everybody. This is Dan. Everybody. So uh, we're going to talk today about, you know, the sort of engineering and getting engineers uh, into the lean startup cycle. Uh, And so I guess the sort of natural place to start off is, you know, at a startup, um, what is sort of an engineer's sort of job? Like, what are they trying to do? And how is that different than not a startup?
2: Uh, Hi, everybody. And hey, Dan, thanks thanks for doing this with me. So, um, one of the hardest things I think for working in a startup, especially if you've had any professional training whatsoever in any kind of like real or normal job, is that your job description changes, but nobody necessarily tells you. Uh, in a startup, my point of view is that a, uh, your job description is do whatever it takes to make the company succeed by whatever means necessary, and that's it. Everything else is just a helpful suggestion, so if it says on your business card that you're an engineer then you, that might suggest that you want to think about some technology things sometimes. But that's actually not essential. And then you know, Dan, I think as you know, there are a lot of situations where focusing on your functional specialty uh, is almost guaranteed to cause the company to fail. So in those cases, you know, it's not good. So taking a step back, you know, we talk a lot about startups. I think hopefully people on the webcast are familiar with new startups. But for those that are new to this set of concepts, Our point of view is that a startup is a human institution designed to do something new under conditions of extreme uncertainty. So being in a startup, your kind of circumstances are defined by that context of extreme uncertainty, by the fact that we don't really know what's gonna work in advance. We don't know if we're on the path to a sustainable business. We have, uh, you know, maybe we have a business plan, we have a set of hypotheses, we have hopes about what might work in the future. And all of our jobs across all functions or to see can we use our skills, our energy, our passion, our insight to reduce that uncertainty any way, any way that we can. Uh, and, you know, of course, in Lean Startup, we advocate doing that by thinking of the work that we do as a set of experiments designed to test those business hypotheses.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, that, you know, uh, that makes sense. And I think, obviously, you know, for me, that's a, a very sort of resonant idea. Um, let's say you're an engineer and uh, you're sort of getting started with these ideas, or you're working on an engineering team. Um, and you have these sort of, you know, possible experiments that you could be doing. You could be, you know, there's a customer, there's one early customer, they're unhappy about something, there's something else. How, you know, there's a, there's a, a you know, a new set of features you're trying to build for a prototype or a demo. Um, how do you make decisions about which of those things is the most valuable? When you talk about, you know, doing whatever is necessary to help the company succeed, how do you have a mental model of what's actually helping it succeed the most?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. I mean, I don't want to make light of that situation that this is an extremely difficult situation to be in. And let's start kind of at the beginner level, like for someone who's new to the set of concepts and kind of work our way up to more mm-hmm. advanced techniques. Because honestly, at the beginning of this, if you're new to this set of ideas, if you're the lean sort of evangelist on an existing team, if you're trying to create something new, then the way to start is actually to start with yourself. And simply to say, whatever work you are in the middle of doing right now, how could you treat that work like an experiment? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, what are the elements of an experiment? The first is that it has an explicit hypothesis. So most product development is done with an implicit hypothesis. We don't necessarily make it clear what our specific expectation is. We just say, hey, customers will love it if I add this whizzly-bang new feature You know, that harnesses solar flares for the benefit of humanity or whatever. And, we sometimes don't even think about, okay, specifically, how does it make anybody's life better? Or am I just doing it because it's a list on the product backlog and it says build this feature and so I build it. Or worse, I read in the specification document there's a requirement that customers want this feature kind of thing. So, so in that situation, first step is to make the hypothesis explicit. Like, what is it supposed to do specifically? And then, all right, this is supposed to make customers want to use our product more. So, okay then how will that manifest specifically in, in real life? It will manifest by improving the, the retention rate of customers who have the opportunity to use this feature. And then think about, okay, then how do I test and measure that specific feature? Just for myself. You don't have to convince anybody else in your team. You don't have to convince your boss. You yourself can, into the implementation plan for the thing that you're working on right now, build this kind of testing in. And that's kind of level one. You know That's the beginning of implementing lean startup in your own work Mm -hmm. as soon as you start to do that of course you if you do that a few times you will automatically almost graduate to a more advanced level which is to say wait a minute if the theory of this feature is that it will make customers want to use my product more is this is building the whole feature really the fastest way to get that learning Is that the fastest path to what we call validated or scientific learning in lean startup and invariably, I mean, I gotta say, 99% of times, you will discover that the answer to that question is no. There's a way faster way you could do it by talking to customers directly, by creating a, a landing page. My favorite is I used to work on really complicated features that in the UI of the product would live behind a single button. So, like, the only way you would know the feature exists is because a new button shows up, like, in the header of a website or, you know, in the UI of a, of a client somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so, like, One of the preliminary hypotheses of the whole feature is that if that button shows up in the UI, people will click it. And I can't tell you how many times that turned out to be straight up false. So a much faster way to experiment would simply be to put the button in the UI. And then when people click it, say, sorry, it's not ready yet, coming soon, but then track how many people do it. So that's when we get to more intermediate techniques, we can start to think a little little bit more clever about how we get that validated learning. Mm So
1: that, this actually sort of brings up something I'm sort of eager to ask you about because I feel like you've done a fair amount of, of teaching uh, of these ideas or sharing of these ideas um, to people who are engineers, to people who are managing engineers to, directly, to people who are you know, running an organization that has engineering as a part of it. Um, and one the sort of path you just talked about was a little bit of the sort of bottom-up, right? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you want to start doing this. You're actually building a feature. You can start to build these sort of measurement, you know, some sort of measurement into that and start to to sort of learn. Um, I'm curious to hear what you've seen sort of succeed and fail when people have tried to do that, Uh, and specifically one thing I've seen happen sometimes, sometimes not, but sometimes is that um, the people, there's other people, product managers or CEOs uh, who have made those implicit hypotheses and they're actually kind of afraid of having them tested and so we, they're not thrilled that you took time off from building the feature, which everyone knows is so late, to build this foolish kind of measurement thing in and they're not going to celebrate when you, the measurement shows them that nobody is clicking on the button. They, you know, oh, yeah. they're speak Oh, it's because the button's the wrong color or whatever. So I'm sort of curious to get your sense of like when does that work? When does it not work and what tactics have you seen that people have been able to try once they get messed yeah. up?
2: Well, this is a huge topic. Oh man, I, um, we're gonna have to break this up into some parts because I could talk for an hour just on the subject alone. Because there's a question of what is the best way to implement this kind of organizational change to switch to a lean startup way of working if people are not used to it, and that is a very important topic. And uh, it requires the explicit buy-in of senior management, as you say. If you're working as an implementer in an organization that thinks it already knows all the answers, then you've got to figure out how do we convince senior management that their pet projects, their beautiful baby, is not as beautiful as they think it is. And that's extremely challenging, especially because so many uh, entrepreneurs, and frankly entrepreneurial-type leaders inside corporate environments, um, they use, they cloak themselves in the mythos of a visionary, in order precisely in order to avoid having to confront these kinds of questions. It's a way of I've never seen time this thing yeah. this thing
1: you're describing, I've never seen that happen. You have no, no idea what I'm talking about. I know, about. I've seen that happen all the time.
2: <laughs> all the time. And and people think from that sometimes that I that I'm anti vision or we don't think you should be visionary. Actually, the foundation of all science is vision. So so there is no such thing as successful product development unless you have a true visionary involved. But I have met a lot of people who are masquerading as visionaries but actually lack vision. And the, and the easiest way to tell the difference between a visionary and a charlatan is to ask them to put their ideas to the test. The visionary who actually believes that they're right will agree to test their ideas 10 times out of 10. Because they have confidence that they know what's going on. And, and if there's something wrong with their vision, if the implementation plan that they've cooked up is not right, they're desperate to know the truth. Because like vision is, is fidelity to a future imagined truth. If it's not true, all the visioning in the world is just a bunch of BS and the charlatans will be afraid every time. And my experience is the ratio of charlatans to visionaries in our world is, you know, 10 to one or a hundred to one. It's quite rare. You know, the true, the true visionaries are, are quite rare, but all of that is about organizational change and take coming from the point of view that I want to change my organization to um, be, have a more truth oriented or more rapid experimentation type culture. And I think that's a very noble goal. Um, but, I really believe that that is a really ambitious goal that requires laying a lot of important groundwork. And the reason I was starting with things that you can do personally as an individual contributor is that I really believe you have to change yourself first. Like if you yourself are not able to apply scientific thinking in small ways, you're going to fail at your vaunted organizational change. Because you're going to lack the skill necessary to confront these kinds of questions. In fact, I remember when I first started discovering the ideas that, you know, now we call lean startup, but at the time it had no name. I would get into these epic fights with my co-founders, with my boss. I was like agitating for testing and all this stuff all the time. But I couldn't answer even the most basic questions about, well, you know, the, the big question was, You know, if we do this test and it comes back negative, won't that result in a loss of our confidence in our vision and cause us to prematurely pivot? Or the classic objection to things like A-B or split testing is that we'll be constantly optimizing and we'll get trapped in a local maximum and we won't see the next big hill. And, you know, there are certain things customers don't know what they want, so how do you test? It's impossible. All those objections are now, I understand, to be completely bogus, but rooted in very realistic um, concerns. And because Lean Startup, and I apologize, this is a bit jargony, but I really believe Lean Startup is a paradigm change from the previous paradigm of way of thinking about product development and what it's for, which means that in the old paradigm, people are facing dichotomies that we now understand to be false dichotomies, like the the trade-off between quality and speed, the the trade-off between, hey, do I do what customers say or do I do what I think is right? What we realize is that um, those are not real dichotomies. We're able to come up with a new synthesis that integrates. Anyway, I'm, I'm skipping way ahead, but simply to say that the reason people believe that stuff, it, like it's for good reason, and it's incumbent on us who want the change to succeed to be able to answer those detailed questions. And the only way to get the expertise needed to answer those questions is actually not just to be on, on webcasts with experts like Dan, which you know is certainly helpful, but there's only a first step towards giving you the framework to then go test for yourself and learn for yourself, teach yourself how this works in the real world. Uh, and that's where learning to see your own work as an experiment is so powerful. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I believe that if you as an engineer, uh, this is true in every function, of course, but I'm an engineer by at, at heart. So we'll talk about we're talking engineering today. If you discover that certain work that you're doing is waste, that it doesn't help you learn what customers want. like That's valuable in its own right, even if you don't never communicate that information to anybody else. Because first of all, you'll, have a, you'll get a preliminary glimpse into whether the product you're working on is actually going to be successful. And if it isn't, you can make for greener pastures. Right? You'll have proprietary information. You'll know, if you're in a, a company that works with a lot of different product managers, you'll very quickly discover that certain product managers know what they're talking about and others don't because their experiments work out the way they said and others don't. And instead of like trying to get them fired or like going to have a fight with them, you'll have that private information. Say, I'm going to work more with the people who know what they're talking about (laughs) and less with the people that don't. And the most powerful thing is if you can start to engage with customers yourself, you can start to, to incorporate some of that learning into your own work so that you become more of a product owner over time. And even if you get a little bit of that skill goes a long way, even if you plan to stay in a technical career your whole career.
1: Um, this this sort of um, topic of sort of understanding how to change yourself um, I think is really powerful and I think you articulate it really well. There's a question from sort of the audience and that matches up with something I wanted to ask of, and the question from the audience is, you know, if people are sort of doing their own thing, how do you make sure there's continuity or everyone's working together? I would also frame that a little bit as we've talked a lot about sort of what's an individual doing what are you doing sort of in the moment. Um, how does the sort of, you know, engineering is a functional specific, you know, group, you know, whatever you want to call it, but how does, how can you think about what engineering as a group is doing, you know, so that you're, that somebody, what one engineer is doing is fitting into everything else and how does the rest of the organization sort of relate to engineering?
2: Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, let's take it. Let's try to take it step by step, um, and you can help me not not ramble too much here, because there's a lot. There's a lot to these questions. They're really good. Let's start with. Where should we start? Um, I'm losing my train of thought here. I'm just like, there's so many things I want to say. I know. As I sort of packed
1: um, all that together, I was like, well, there's like a, <laughs> there's a lot, you know.
2: Yeah, there's a lot. Okay, so engineering. You know, like, one question is engineering. What is it for? <laughs> Totally. Yeah, like, you know, why do we have engineering? And everyone's like, that's a dumb question. Like, everyone knows engineering is to build products. And it's like, okay, but is it? Like, I'll prove it to you that that's not right. Uh, If if engineering builds products that nobody buys, then most companies go out of business immediately. Mm -hmm. So is engineering's job to take the company out of business immediately? No. So engineering's job is to build products that somebody wants to buy. Or, you know, now no, no, should be careful. Not every business plan is based on directly selling products to consumers, but whatever the business plan says, the products have some purpose in the world to have an impact. And engineering is supposed to make that impact come to life. Or engineering's job is to take what's in the specification document handed to it by product managers and build that with fidelity to what the product manager intended. The reason why engineering is a hard job, in, especially in a corporate setting, is that most companies uh, have superposition. They simultaneously believe engineers' job is to do what they're told and also to deliver results with customers. And those two uh, job descriptions are only in harmony in the very rare case that the specification document is perfect. And, you know, we can get into why specification documents are never perfect. So, you know, like, I mean, that basically never happens. And so engineering often bears the brunt of the responsibility for having implemented things incorrectly. Because what happens is the, the, the product manager was like, okay, If we give customers this set of features, then customers will behave like this, and they wrote it out in great detail. When engineering took that thing and tried to make it real, customers didn't behave the way they were supposed to. Now, whose fault is that? could be the wrong hypothesis, product manager's fault, or it could be engineering didn't implement the thing well enough to get the experiment to happen. Uh, So, you know, product manager can use the old consultant's defense. Hey, engineering, did you implement every single feature exactly like it says in my document? The answer to that question is always 100% no. Because in real life, there are trade-offs. Engineering had to make trade-offs. They were constrained by time and resources, and they did the best they could, and there were unanticipated issues that weren't in the specification document. And the product manager can always seize on those differences and say, see, you didn't implement my vision, therefore it's your fault. And as an engineer, I spent a lot of years just being <laughs> on the receiving end of that argument feeling horrible. But um, if you start to reframe the purpose of engineering as to actually achieve results and to, to help customers, then it changes the conversation we're having with our engineers and makes them part, really forces you to bring them into the process of building and owning products a lot earlier and, and requires continuity through the whole life of a product to see, hey, does do our engineers actually have the ability to carry this through to customers? Does that make sense?
1: Um, it certainly does to me. I think part of, I mean, and... Um, One of my questions then would be, I think a lot of what you described, I think, you know, rings very true from my sort of uh, career as a developer. Um, One of the things that I'm curious about is, or one of the things I see, and I would sort of describe this and ask you to sort of give your sense, is a lot of what you just described is true of essentially all software development, which is part of why a lot of stuff like Agile sort of tries to get at some of that. Um, one of the things I think that you articulated well is that there's almost a continuum where like at a you know a particular super well-established business, you might know a bunch of this stuff. And so the you know, the specification for it doesn't work great, but you can kind of get by with it, maybe yeah. you know, whatever. You can improve it with some agile, etc. But as you get all to all the way to a startup, it's like not only is the hypothesis of whether or not these features are what customers want, there's not even sure that the these are the right customers. We're not even sure if they're gonna pay us money, we're not even sure, you know, there's there's so much uncertainty. Yeah. Um, and I feel like there's there's actually a sort of a, a shift that for me, that one of the things that becomes a very important shift is the, the sort of centerpiece of discussion between engineering and the rest of the business, whatever that means, yeah. has to shift away from what it often starts as, which is a schedule with a list of features that will be finished by certain dates, and towards yeah. a sort of biggest questions that we're trying to answer sort of yeah. as you go through the features. Um, and I'm curious if that lines up with your experience and how you've That's seen right. people succeed or not succeed in making that kind of shift.
2: Yeah, it's really important, and, and listen, this is not unique to software engineering, this is true across all engineering, and you're trying to do engineering under conditions of extreme uncertainty, then in order to succeed at delighting customers, remember, succeeding at, at implementing something anyone can do, but if your goal is to actually delight customers and have an impact on the world, then it's really important to build cross-functional collaboration into the process from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And to see marketing, engineering, operations, whatever the key functions that are required to build a product to life, really see them integrated into um, a unit that is working together to try to retire some of those risks and uncertainties early on. And I'll give you an example from, let me go to a hardware and uh, engineering example, because I, I feel like sometimes software people are like, well, if it can work in hardware, that's really hard. So then, uh, sure, surely it will work in software. Although some people, of course, have the opposite point of view. We'll do our best to give you examples from all, all fields. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when people hear minimum viable product and rapid experimentation, they often think immediately of cutting corners, like, ah, this is trading quality for time. Oh, no, time quality money pick two It's not going to, you know, all kinds of issues come up. And I was working with a team that makes, um, uh, what can I say about this product, A, uh, a piece of machinery where the company was very focused on its efficiency when we're making physical products efficiency is often a really important um goal and so you know how it was a typical process somebody did a market research study or something uh, and produced a list of requirements this is what the comp- this is what the customer requires that the product be able to do and you know when engineers see these lists it's often like it has to be able to, you know, do teleportation and be an infinite source of it, you know, be a perpetual motion machine and wash your car and give you a pony. You know, like, it's like the customer's ultimate wish list. Totally. And that's what makes the engineering problem hard. So the reason we often, you know, in most corporations, the reason we do these multi-year product development uh, projects that take forever is that we, we start with a requirements document that's extremely difficult. And as engineers, our job is to take the difficult thing and make it possible. But when you start to view requirements instead as hypotheses and say, look, wait a hold on. This is not even the right way to go about this at all. We don't even really know if anyone's going to want this product at all. Um, where do these requirements come from anyway? What, what sense are they required? Like my point of view is only the laws of physics are required. Everything else is optional. So this is not, you know, this level of efficiency that this product requires, how do we know that that's really what customers want? Well, in this case, I like this example because here's how the company had derived the requirement because they were expecting this product to take forever, because their product development always takes forever, they had said, all right, we think it'll probably take about five years. That's how long the last kind of product like this we built. So five years from now, let's look at the efficiency that all of our competitors' products have today. And let's extrapolate out, based on our own guess, about how those competitors work and how their technology works, what we think the efficiency of their products will be five years from now. And now let's add 10% to make sure that we're competitive at that time. So it's like an unknown piled on a heap of unknowns, times some unknowns, extrapolated through three unknowns, plus 10%. Now that efficiency target is what makes the the engineering problem difficult in the first place. So we said, you know, one of the ways that we go faster in an engineering organization is by using experimentation to relax the requirements and make the engineering problem fundamentally easier. So, cause implicit in this whole plan for this five year development cycle with you, I can't even tell you the amount of investment in this piece of equipment was gonna be made to develop this thing. There's this implicit thing that says, customers will pay a price premium for efficiency and not just a minor price premium. They will pay an extreme price premium for this kind of efficiency. And you're like, well, is that really true? Like, what is the evidence from the marketplace? Let's go, f- so you said, let's go find out. So we built a minimum viable product where we went to customers with the, with the brochure. This is not, you're like, wait a minute, this is supposed to be about engineering. Why are we talking about brochures? But if our job is to engineer things that people want, we have to get comfortable with this kind of testing. So we, we took an engineering team, a cross-functional team of engineers and marketers that designed the specs for a, of a version of this product that they might be able to build. And they took it to customers and offered it for pre-order. And the awesome thing about a brochure is it's really easy to change the efficiency. So you can You know, if customers won't buy at a certain efficiency, you can increase the efficiency. You can play with the pricing. You can really change the value proposition to figure out what customers want. And when they did the first experiment, they were like, let's put the high-end, super-efficient version in the brochure. And I was like, you know, let's do the opposite of that. Let's actually start with a brochure that's incredibly easy for engineering to build and see if customers will buy that. Because if the answer is that they will not buy it, no problem. We just improve the specs until they will. But if the problem is, like, some, and engineers really don't like to hear this. Like, they were like, but what if the customer is willing to buy the crappy version? Like, what if they don't care about the cool things that I care about? What if they are willing to buy the easy thing? Well, gosh, we could get the product out, you know, three years sooner. That's a pretty good deal. So, so by doing those kinds of experiments, we give ourselves the opportunity to solve an easier engineering problem that might actually have more impact on the world.
1: So I want to jump in because there's something that um, you were just saying that I think is really sort of a subtle but really critical piece of that, which is when you, um, there's sort of the, I'll, I'll describe it as sort of the evil and the good versions of the arc you just talked about. And I think people yeah. often assume the evil one, but the good one is actually really sort of very powerful very, to, to be a part of. The evil version is that marketing does that without talking to engineering. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, marketing has a bunch of theories about what is easy and hard to do or whatever. They're not even thinking about what's easy and hard to do. And they just go off and they come back to engineering and be like, hey, we showed them a bunch of brochures. Let's get working. Um, but what sort of you just said, and, and I think it's key, is just I want to harp on it, is engineering and marketing, we'll call it marketing or whatever that function is, together come up with a set of like different brochures and a different understanding. Because then part of One of the ways to understand this is that there's things that the world wants from you. There's things that are valuable to customers. You don't know what those things are. You've got to find out. There's things that are easy and hard to do. You don't really know what those are. You have to find out. And you have a sort of model of both of those things. And part of engineering's creative job, and at a well-run cross-functional team, this creativity is actually exciting. It's not a negative thing, is to sit down with marketing and start to brainstorm. And what always happens, and this is actually like once, I think, once you have this experience as an engineer it's very addictive is oh, marketing yeah. is just talking and they, they, they you know they came to the meeting saying we need this crazy efficiency goal and engineering's like wow we got to pad the schedule i'm not sure if we can do that last time we promised that there was that huge fight when we just missed um yeah. and then you're kind of talking and engineering kind of you know, marketing kind of casually says oh yeah, of course the customers want this thing but that's totally crazy and impossible and engineering's like well we can kind of do that this weird way, does that work?" And marketing will look at you in awe, like they're like, oh my god, you could do that thing? And they're like, sure, we could totally do that thing, we do yeah. this, do that, whatever. Um, so, and that's actually the key thing there is that there's stuff coming up from reality of like what is and isn't hard that you actually don't know, you, you don't know how to match those two things. And part of what the, uh, I think can be very exciting about working this way is when you make those discoveries by working together. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: So I wanted to sort of, I wanted to sort of throw out that pitch for, as an engineer, to look at that process of totally. coming up with that brochure as an exciting, positive thing. Um, so. Um, okay, I want to jump to another question because somebody asked it, which actually kind of um, fits into this, uh, which is something I've heard a lot, you know, I, I sort of pitched some of these ideas and, um, uh, and sometimes gotten traction, sometimes not. Uh, one, very, <laughs> one very common thing, and, and as you said before, I think it's rooted in a real problem, but you have to sort of, there's good ways around it, is people will say, okay, engineers don't like to throw away their work. You know, somebody yeah, yeah. says... How you know, oh, we're going to build this demo, we're going to you know, stay up all night doing it, and then we're just going to throw it away. Like, and, and part of what I think they're experiencing is, that or remembering is that engineering was really pissed the last time you did that, you know, that that actually happened because what, you know, engineering wasn't told we're building a demo. They're told we have to build this incredibly important new feature and then you threw it away. There's much anger. So, so speak, someone who has that concern, someone who's an engineering leader, or someone who's working with engineering who says, I want to start working this way, but I'm really worried. In fact, my team's already a little pissed because we threw away the last thing yeah, that they yeah. built. How am I going to get them to embrace
2: this? Oh man, is this hard. I listen, and I was the worst offender of all. I hated having my work thrown away. I mean, I would fight tooth and nail to make sure that that never happened, even way past the point of reason. And that's not unique to engineering. Nobody wants to see their work thrown away. The, the solution, I think, is in two parts. The first is to recognize that if we wind up building something that people don't want, the work will be thrown away anyway. Mm-hmm. So like whether the work gets thrown away or not is actually not in our control. Only if the work works, like only if the product is delightful to customers, Will it survive? Otherwise, it's waste. Because I can tell you, from my personal experience, I have built many amazing products, if I do say so myself, incredible feats of technological prowess that even today are sitting on a shelf and nobody is working on them. And at the time, you know, I was very focused on making sure they were highly scalable. You know, like, make sure that when millions of customers tried to use them, they, you know, they wouldn't fall apart. And I, you know, I, for a while, I was actually proud that I never had any scalability problems in any of my products. Until I realized the reason I didn't have any scalability problems is because I didn't have any customers. Totally. So, like, why am I proud that I built highly scalable architecture? How do I even know it would have scaled if customers? Yeah. I never even, never got put to the test.
1: I actually pitched that. I gave it to this talk on postmortems, and recently gave it to Velocity. And I was saying to people, the fact that you had a painful outage is a sign that you're succeeding and i because people care yeah, you know right. what I mean? and like that's, you can almost hear like like half the room is like oh, that's true <laughs> you know like you can, it's like a weird shift but it's completely true you can have the you know you have a great stable system when no one's using it
2: it's awesome yeah it's like engineering would be so easy if it wasn't for those damn customers <laughs> exactly right um so so that's the first thing is that this all this testing and experimentation is a path towards preventing work from being thrown away now, everyone on the team has to sincerely believe that. So when there's a history of bad faith action or perceived bad faith action, you got to clear those human emotions you know, before you can make any progress. You know, that's, you know, that's like a, a team dynamics and psychology problem that's important. And we not just clear the bad emotions like everyone have a vent session. You have to change the structural things that caused those bad behaviors in the past. Uh, What people don't understand, I mean, this is the psychology literature for many, many years, you know, something called the fundamental attribution error, which is that when people have a bad experience with another human being, they assume, irrationally, actually, that that's due to the fundamental attributes of that person. They're a bad person. They're mean. They're mean-spirited. They're nasty. Of course, we don't hold ourselves to those same standards. You know, when we do something wrong, it's because of circumstance. and We were forced to. We didn't mean to. It was an error, you know, a good-natured mistake. But we, we project bad things onto other people. So when we put people in an environment, for example, where people are in functional silos, where everyone's working part-time on a lot of different stuff, no one has real accountability or ownership over anything, deadlines are uh, arbitrarily imposed and schedules are always behind and we're constantly on a death march. In those circumstances, we cause people to act, to, to make mistakes which impact other people negatively. But we also, because of the fundamental attribution error, cause a lot of bad blood to the bubbling up, because every time one of those mistakes happens, the people who are the victims of our bad system um, tend to feel like the person who made the mistake personally was attacking them. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we have to, to commit to solve that problem by making the systems better, and that means no handoffs, no silos, no part-time, I mean, just like the basic structures of how you build a good startup team we can talk more about. After you've done all of that work to clear the bad blood, and after you've then you can start out of the conversation that says, listen. The only way to guarantee our work will be thrown away is to ignore feedback and just like put our head in the sand. You know, This is the much better path. The second part of the argument that I found to be very effective is to point to people. People have a lot of experience or they've seen stories of the, like the truth that is in, a, in situations of uncertainty, the learning is the value, not the artifact. And the, the proof is in the number of times a small team has quit some larger company gone off and recreated something amazing, you know, blowing away their prior employers. And the prior employers have sued them unsuccessfully for trade secret violation. It's like, like clockwork. I've been on the receiving end of this. I mean, it's like every time this happened because when you see a small team take the learning that they have over many years in the industry and start from scratch, even though they lack the infrastructure and they don't have the development tool, they had to build a whole new code base and they needed a whole new platform and they had to do everything from scratch, and they had no money, no budget, no 500-person team. Like, the late, the learning is so valuable, it more than compensates for all those lacks. And people who are in a traditional environment just can't believe it. So, like, they must have stolen our infrastructure. It's the only possible way. But, I mean, the number of lawsuits in the startup world that are of this form are legion. And, and it's extremely rare that any theft took place. What happened was the team learned what customers actually want, and that learning is where the value is. Mm-hmm. So part of this is getting people to say if you got the learning, it doesn't matter what got thrown away. Mm-hmm. Because fundamental would, learning about what will work is where the value lies.
1: I would sort of add something to that, uh, which I think is a, um, i mean, it's all very true. And I think that a lot of engineers, if you can get them in the right mindset, actually are great. Uh, they're great. The, selling the lean startup to engineers can go really well. Uh, and part of the, and, you know, Eric's an engineer. I'm an engineer. It's not uncommon. I think part of what is useful is to, is to uh, understand that engineers are really, I think, mostly, not all of them, but almost all of them, profoundly driven by wanting to solve meaningful problems. Like they really like, there's a sort of, at some point in their life, they realize they can solve problems that get, you know, and they make the world a slightly better place and it's very addictive. Uh, and they may have forgotten that if they're working in an organization which doesn't allow them to do that. But part of what you can do, and I've had luck doing this, is if the leadership of the organization can share the fundamental questions about whether or not the business is going to work as a problem to be solved, that, that they're, they're sort of willing to own up to the fact that like we're trying to make this startup work on this set of theories, we're not sure if, if we're doing it right, that's what we're all trying to figure out, let's all go solve that problem together engineering, engineers can get really excited about trying to solve yeah. the problem, how to make this business work, and then they don't see themselves as throwing work away. They see themselves as being like, hey, we made a demo in five days that used to take us 30 days, and sure, it was thin tissue paper, but we know exactly how to sort of fix it if we need to, um, and we're, making, we're sort of solving a different problem. Um, the, one of the, key, you know, engineers have to sort of get to the point where they trust the the problems they're being told are meaningful, and leadership has to be able to offer their uncertainty as a first-class citizen, they have to sort of own the fact that they don't know what's going on. Both of those things are non-trivial, and and both of those are are sort of deeply human problems. As a leader, there's a tremendous temptation to pretend you know the answers, and as an engineer, there's a tremendous temptation to remember your bitter past history and not trust that the problems you are solved will actually matter. Yeah. Um, but if you can get those together, engineers just get, like, super excited. And if you, once you've seen it happen, you don't doubt that it could be made to happen because they just, like, that's what they love to do.
2: When I was, um, when I was leading engineering teams uh, in trying to teach people the system, before it was even called the startup, before we knew how to talk about it, um, you know, I w- I'm a pretty young person. I was even younger then. And I would be in the position, because it's a startup, of having to hire people more experienced than me. So we'd take a 10-year veteran of the software industry at a Yahoo or something and bring him into the startup environment. And we would have them do the techniques of lean startup, things like continuous deployment. So we would have them fix a bug and deploy it live to production on day one of their employment. And a lot of them had a lot, like it was really hard at first, incredible resistance. Quite a few times someone would sit me down and say, listen, kid, this isn't how it's done. Let me teach you proper engineering. And I had to say, listen, with all due respect, you work for me. But try it. If you try it and and see how it works, and then you don't like it and you think the old way is better, come back and convince me, and we'll we'll get into it. We'll take the we want to take the advantage of your wisdom. And I can't say we had a hundred percent success rate. Right? We had some people that we could not convince, you know. But very rarely did someone try it and then want to go back to the old way. But what happened was you'd see this light bulb go off, and I, I just think, think of some certain interactions I had where people like finally got it. They're like, oh my god. This is a superior way of working. So then, this is the best part, those incredibly frustrating, like en- the engineering brain is extremely stubborn and extremely focused on doing things the way it thinks is right. So engineers only ever do what they think is right no matter what you tell them. So that, is ex- that resistance is very difficult to overcome. But once you overcome it, those same attributes work in your favor. So my favorite thing to do would be to call an engineering all-hands meeting and let some new person who was pissed about how the system's not good, bring it up in the meeting. And I didn't have to say a word. We had all these converts who had gotten over the resistance themselves, and they were like more rabid and ideological and committed to the cause than even I was because they were like, why on earth would you ever build something and not test to see if it works? Like That's like engineering 101 is you always test what you build. And like testing the business assumptions is just as important as the technical assumptions, so why would you ever do that? And I once witnessed, this is one of the greatest moments ever. I was overhearing, I just happened to be in a cubicle next door, when one of the most junior engineers, a kid right out of school, was working on our team, was sitting in a cubicle near where I was standing. And the CEO of the company walks in and tells him to build a feature for him as just a pet project. I mean, literally orders him to build this feature. And the kid's like, well, you know, I'll be happy, yes, sir, happy to do it. Um, You know, and I'll I'll add some A-B testing and we'll test the metrics, you know, just to make sure that it, does what you say, and the CEO was like, No, that's not necessary, don't bother with that. Just you know, just build the feature like I told you. And the kid was like, You know, uh, I don't think that's how we do things here, so so no, I'm not gonna do that. But I will build your feature, I'm just gonna also do this other thing It's a standard operating procedure. And he just he wasn't being argumentative, he wasn't like being an asshole, he was just saying, like, I, it's, it's like as if you told me to write the feature without software, it's like I can't do that. It can't be written without code. That's the way it's it's just those are the tools that we use to build it. I can't build it without a compiler. I can't build it without, you know, uh, a design. I'm going to use interfaces. It's going to have classes. And also it's going to have testing. That's just, that's just, that's how we work. And, and he knew the the kid had total confidence that he could do that because he knew that every person on the team would back him up. That we all, that was just like, was our agreed standard operating procedure was to retire those kind of risks. It was a really cool moment. And, you know, and actually, it helped the CEO understand why working that way was important. Like mm-hmm. this kid, fresh out of school, you know, with no industry experience at all, was making a very eloquent case why we do it that way. And he would only worked for us for a couple months, like just long enough to basically learn the system. But he, once he understood the logic of it, he could explain that logic to somebody else, even though that person was an important, you know, muckety-muck.
1: Um, I, I love that story, and I love the... Um that just the, 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 the little window we get into for you, that sort of feeling of profound learn, you know, learning yourself when you see someone else take those ideas and run with them is it's a very deep feeling. Um, so there's actually a ton of really good questions and I mean this, this must be like your entire life in that people ask these awesome questions that you're like, well there's like six months of explaining about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually shift a little and um, ask and sort of try something a little different um, because I feel, like, I feel like we've done a nice job of laying out some of the sort of core principles. Um, that which is sort of key. I think I strongly believe that's one of the things I think you did that's very powerful is you gave these sort of you know, underlying principles you know, sort of clearly and we've talked some about how do you think about changing your organization a little, you know, obviously that's a huge topic, how do you change yourself, you know, what are the key things that have to happen, just to help people understand, let's say somebody who's, who's only worked in a traditional dev environment or at a large company, even a good one, um, maybe they're having trouble imagining, like, what's a day in the life of a startup, of an engineer startup like? And, you know, somebody asked, like, well, how does this work in a scrum meeting or whatever, but just, you know, in whatever form feels useful to you. Maybe talk a little bit about an imagined day for an engineer at a startup where, you know, they end up going home feeling like they did a good job, you know, insofar as you can at a startup, right?
2: Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I'll I'll just tell you some stories. Um, I'll tell you two stories that that seem like they have nothing to do with each other, but actually uh, are almost the same. One is from a startup that makes a mobile app, okay? So, like, as, like, classic, a Silicon Valley startup as you want. I know the story because I happen to be an investor in the company. like, great, solid team, you know, lots of winning experience. Like, they're obviously going to be successful, like, been successful before doing everything right. And the second is a public high school. So, not exactly the same. Uh, And I know because, uh, I know the second story because we had one of our speakers at the conference last year, a woman named Diane Tavener. She was fantastic.
1: They, I've made many people watch that speech.
2: Okay. <laughs> yeah, listen, if you haven't watched Dan Taverner's video from last year's conference, then you're just missing out. It's just, it's a great, yeah. I think it's like 10 minutes. So It's tremendous. I completely agree. After, after 10 minutes, you will, you will, your life will be better, so you may as well watch it. Um, she runs uh, something called Summit Public Schools here in the Bay Area. And so, it, let me talk with the mobile app. Mobile app has the following operating rhythm. They, every week, they do a new build. So that's just the rule. And They do the new build on Friday and everyone on the team, this happens to be a product that it's mobile. So everyone on the team has a mobile phone. So every Friday they take the new build and they all, they have a meeting to review what's in the new build and put it on their phone. So they all personally load the product and then they, it's a product that's mostly used over the weekend. Uh, so it's entertainment. So they themselves use it over the weekend and they have a meeting on Monday. And the Monday meeting is to review the results of the weekend experiment that they do every weekend. Part of it is their personal subjective experiences using the product, and part of it is they look at the metrics of what they're doing with the product. They often will, for example, they'll often roll out the new version in a smaller market. So they don't, like, their product, you know, they're big in the United States, but they might start in New Zealand um, if if it's a particularly controversial product. So they... They have, they have a set of key metrics they look at that are like the overall global metrics for the product, the specific metrics related to the specific experiments they happen to be running, and their personal subjective experiences of using the product. And they plan what they're going to do that week. And then they go do it. And that's it. Like, it's really that simple. They, they, this team doesn't even need Kanban boards, story cards, like a lot of the, the op- apparatus of Agile. They just do it intuitively. They have a whiteboard, they keep track of things, they tell each other what's going on, but it's a small team, they're focused, you know, and that's their life. And a lot of times, they come in on Monday and say that the experiment's not working. Throw it out, try something different. Like, it's very, they're, they're not attached to the specific code that they wrote. Rather, they're very focused on building a superior experience. And if you think about the mobile apps especially, but this has been true of software for many years, the products that you personally love the most, for most of us, are the simplest. They're they're on the surface have very few features and all the complexity is hidden behind a really gentle user experience. Those products can only be produced by teams that are willing to throw code away. If you're afraid to delete, then you can only add complexity. Like simplification is the removal of complexity. Like that's the true art of product design, especially in in mobile, where uh, people play place an extreme pre that extreme. Premium on sim- on simplicity.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, in Summit Schools, they wanted to teach math to kids, and this is a public school, a charter school that uh, takes you know, this is not rich kids; this is kids from all over, so every kind of background you can imagine. And they started to experiment with uh, a new curriculum, new structure, new format. And I don't want to. I don't. I, I want people to go watch the video. Now that I think about it, so I'm not going to ruin the punchline, but. They actually got the teachers they, they, took a, they took a grade in a math class, and that you know had three sections of that math class and instead of having each teacher teach one third of the kids you know, for an hour every day, they blew up the walls between the classrooms, they had all the kids together, and they turned that three teacher team into a startup and said, "Every week, experiment with what actually drives learning among these kids and so they have certain, like, the solutions that they're building. Some of them are software. so There's software people involved in the team, and they, they have cool technology they're building. But a lot of it is non-technical. You know, it has to do with the layout of the classroom, the, the structure of the curriculum. Um, they gave kids the chance, like, the opportunity to sit in a lecture or go to the genius bar and talk to a tutor or do peer learning or watch a Khan Academy video. Like, the kids become much more self-directed. They can learn concepts in different ways. All these cool experiments. Some of them really worked, and others didn't. So how do they do that? Well, every week, they come in on Monday and say, what experiments are we going to run this week? And what metrics will we look at on Friday to say, did this work? And then they do what it takes to run those experiments and see how it goes. And then you know, every couple of weeks, they have a, more, of a, a you know, more dramatic pivot or persevere meeting to decide if it's time to try something really different. Like They basically eventually concluded that lecture doesn't work. You'd be shocked. All of us as students are shocked to hear that lecturing is actually not a good content delivery vehicle, and they just eliminated it. But think about how hard it was. Well, you think it was hard for an a, a engineer to let code go? You're a professional educator, and you're going to let lecturing go? Now that's hard. And it's only through this regular rhythm of experimentation that they were able to make that happen.
1: Cool. So I think we're going to wrap up. Um, I will certainly strongly echo uh, Eric's recommendation that you listen to that talk. Um, I, I was at the conference. It was a fantastic talk and I've actually made several people watch it since then. Um, because the, the sort of her approach and the way she was able to apply this, not only in the public school system, which seems like, you know, uh, how, how could this be relevant, but somewhere where the, the existing learning cycle was like five years. It was like they had to wait till someone graduated and went to college to, um, to find out. Um, that they, they, they approached that problem head on and were able to do these sort of amazing things, and she tells that story really well, uh, and I feel like it's part of what's so good about it, so inspiring, is it makes you feel much more like whatever you see is making it hard for you to learn quickly, there's a creative way around it uh, and then mm-hmm. once you get through it you uh, these amazing things can happen um, so I'll uh, sort of echo that pitch. Um, Let me so also I gonna, uh, oh, ahead, I
2: just, I just throw one thing in. Will somebody in the chat uh, throw in links to these YouTube videos because not only Diane Tavener's talk is awesome but I should mention that Dan uh, my inter- my interrogator interrogator my, my yes. companion in this uh, in this webcast was also a speaker last year and gave an amazing talk uh, about five whys and both Of course, Dan and Diane will be back as speakers at the conference this year. Uh, So uh, leanstartup.co, you can get all that information. And I hope someone will will put those YouTube videos in the chat so people can, uh, can see. Both Dan's talk and Diane's are really outstanding.
1: Thank you. Um, so I think with that, I'm, I'm, I'm in this sad situation of leaving a ton of really interesting questions. Some sort of high level, how do you change an organization, some marvelously detailed things about which I actually like, want to sort of geek out and get into. How do you mix testing into, you know, building demos and all this other stuff? Um, so, but I, I apologize. This There's so much to talk about here. I'm really glad we got to uh, have this conversation uh, and uh, uh, sort of get into some of these details. So.
0: Thanks to everyone for joining us today, and thanks to Ustream for making this webcast possible. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for the next one in September. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on the Lean Startup Conference coming up on December 9th to 11th in San Francisco.